When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And so we've got to grapple not only with the whitening of Jesus in terms of visually, but the domesticating of Jesus and the colonizing of Jesus so that he's been tied to projects of social dominance and oppression um, for so long. And so, yeah, um, the church is deeply embedded with this. And it's not until we look and peer deeply at what has happened, take a look, look in the mirror. It's not until we really do that seriously that we're going to be able to kind of disentangle all the mess that has nothing to do with Jesus, has nothing to do with the way the good news and the reign of God on earth. Um, Until we do that work, we're going to continue to try to be a part of the solution continue to perpetuate the problem as well. And so we've got to get a better sense of Christian history, I think, um, if we're going to move forward in any kind of meaningful way. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm your host, John Williamson. Welcome back. Um, This is part two. Uh, We did not originally plan on this series, but uh, felt that it was absolutely necessary, um, especially based on the things that we are seeing uh, around the country right now and, and really at large around the world. And, um, uh, and so we brought Dr. Hart back on uh, as one of our favorite guests. Uh, I just think he has a gift for really breaking down the history and um, all of the nuances uh, within Um, systemic racism, specifically within the United States and how it ties into uh, colonialism and uh, Christianity and all the things that uh, contributed to where we are today and and the the problems that we are now being forced to to really look at. Um, In a way, the death, the murder of George Floyd uh, pushed to the surface this conversation that was long overdue and needed to happen. And, uh, and, and I'm hoping that this is something that really is sustainable and leads to um, tangible and lasting change. And so we talk a lot about that on this episode. Um, I, I really value uh, Dr. Hart's work, his new book uh, that is not out yet, but it will be called uh, Who Will Be a Witness? And it's really a call to arms for the church. And I, I mean arms uh, in finger quotes, really, but it's, it's really uh, a push for, for the, the church Christians specifically to to really be a voice of change and really be at the forefront instead of um, kind of riding the fence in the middle and and not taking a stance and and I know for me personally it's been a frustration for a while on a number of social issues but um, I've long felt that the church has been absent as a voice when it comes to the social injustices that we see happening so um, really enjoy this conversation um, again. Those of you who are out there protesting, um, God bless you. Um, you know, you will be on the right side of history and, uh, just stay safe. Uh, but, uh, again, hopefully, hopefully, um, 
this episode is helpful. Um, I always feel like I learn a ton um, every time we, we have him on. So, uh, so go out and, and grab his first book if his new one's not um, available yet. His first book is one of my favorite books. Uh, as I say in the episode, I have a habit of um, giving away my copies of books that I really like. And then uh, once I'm out of my copies, then I order them and send them to, to friends. And this is one of them. So his first book was called uh, The Trouble I've Seen. Um, and it is... Um, easily just one of my favorite books. Um, so anyway, uh, seeing as we, we really put this series together pretty quickly, I don't actually know who is the featured artist uh, in terms of music on this episode. So you'll have to check the show notes and I apologize to whoever the artist is. Uh, but, uh, but I'm sure it's great. So uh, so go out and support them. Uh, everything as usual is in the show notes in terms of uh, um, information about our guest, uh, publications, uh, links to, uh, to them, uh, as well as the band and the songs used on the episode. So, um, thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, thank you for all the support and the encouragement. Um, as always, you can keep up on top of everything that we're up to at our website, www.thedeconstructionist.com. There you can link to our social media, you can read our blog, uh, you can listen to all our past episodes. Uh, we are over 100 now, which is crazy. So you've got, about, uh, you've got over 100 episodes to, to pull from on a whole host of different topics. Um, and so if you like what we're doing, uh, you can go out and, and, and check out all those old episodes. Uh, you can also uh, link to our web store in there. We've got some pretty cool t-shirts designed by a lot of our very talented friends. Um, and uh, what else? Oh, Patreon. So if you, if you want to support us uh, in that way, we do have a Patreon and we have some cool packages on there, including our very uh, ever popular book club where we send you um, a book every month. Uh, either uh, written by a guest that we've had on or something that we think is, is useful that we've been reading. Um, so you can link to it through the website there. Uh, otherwise, as always, thank you guys so much. Um, love you. And without further ado, Dr. Drew freaking Hart. Time and time again, we befriend sentiment. Time again, sentiment All right, welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm, I'm very excited and very pleased to, to have uh, Dr. Drew Hart back on again. So thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be here. Yeah, I'm glad to be in conversation with you again. Absolutely. Um, so, so last time we had John was, I think, a couple of years ago, and it was uh, based around your your last book, Trouble I've Seen. And um, I love that book. I've actually personally either purchased it or just given out my copies to uh, to a lot of my friends, just because I think it does such a great job of explaining, especially for um, you know, like white folks such as myself, like kind of gives a, a better idea of just how. Uh, baked into the system that that racism really is um, from the start. So, um, so going from that book to to the new book that obviously you're in the in the process of getting ready to publish here um, seems like it could not be more timely. What what was your inspiration for writing this next book? Yeah, I mean the the this next book that I wrote actually was in response to after I, I engaged actual congregations and folks around my first book. I mean, I had such 
great feedback and response from trouble I've seen. I was doing anti-racism work in churches, congregations, colleges. I'm still doing so much of that work. In fact, even this moment, literally, um, my emails are blowing up right now in terms of um, folks who want to engage and go deeper. But one of the things I found was that I asked people to to start being living in solidarity and working for racial justice. And people had no clue what that actually meant or looks like. Um, and so that was actually the spark for me wanting to write this next book was that I saw that people kind of, it was one thing for them to begin to grapple and, and learn what it means to be anti-racists in terms of their individual lives, in terms of their communal lives, in terms of like engaging different specific institutions, but they really had no paradigm for social change um, beyond that as the church, as Christians in their communities. And so I wanted to write a book um, um, initially just for that. And then I really, once I got thinking about what I wanted to do, it was much broader than that, um, that I, I felt like the church needed to grapple with its mangled witness over the centuries, to grapple with the radical witness of Jesus, to think critically about our history, to think about the local church in terms of how we do life, and then what it means to go out and to participate in concrete ways of uh, doing social change. And that were rooted not only in both my own personal experience, but also research-based social change, not just what any given person was feeling at any given moments that they think is going to work. But there's actually a lot of really good research that's been done on social change as well. And so I wanted to bring that insight into the conversation. Oh, that's great. I, I just think, I think your work is so important and I'm not at all surprised when you say that you had, uh, you were inundated with requests, um, based off of your first book. And I don't think I mentioned it, but the name of the new book is, is going to be who will be a witness. And, um, we were talking right before we recorded it, like, it almost seems like you kind of foretold or, you know, had foreseen uh, what was going to happen because this, this book is so timely, so appropriate and so necessary, I think for, for folks out there. So, um, so, so I just want to get your, your kind of your feeling and, and your thoughts on, on what we see going on uh, throughout the country. So like, obviously um, you know, the, the, the nation and world at large has kind of erupted into protests over the death, the murder of George Floyd, but he's certainly far from uh, the first, per, you know, the first black man who's been murdered at the hands of police. I mean, there's a countless list just in recent history. So what is your sense for what, what was it about this instance that kind of put things over the top? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that's a great question. I think that if you think about the moment that we were in, um, a lot of different things coalesced into our moment. And so, number one, obviously, we're going through the pandemic. And because of that, people have been kind of cloistered in their homes um, and and dealing with all the social distancing. And in the midst of that, people are online more, right? And so I think that that was one dynamic is that people are just online more than they normally are. And then you have the frustrations over the handling of the economy. You've got um, black people literally bearing both the a larger responsibility in terms of actually laboring out, you know, within society, but also um, disproportionately being impacted by um, death through um, the COVID virus as well. 
Um, you've got Donald Trump, who just even in the midst of what was going on in the, the pandemic and the suffering and the frustrations, he's still going with his white supremacist bully pulpit and leadership. Um, and so I think all of those things came together. And and I think, you know, things were able to go viral in a, in a way that they couldn't a few months ago, precisely because of all those factors compiling upon one another. And so, yeah, I think that... Um, you know, obviously it's not because um, these police brutality—in fact, some of these things that we got so upset about were things that actually happened a couple months ago, right? And so I think that it it's really just the, the particular moment that we found ourselves in created a perfect storm in a good way for, for uprising and for resistance to happen. Um, and it brought a lot of um, energy and passion. Uh, the real question will be is— um, will it be sustained? Will it be active? Or will people just allow this to be one of those whirlwind moments where everyone's all in a frenzy and then, you know, soon after people go their separate ways? That's still to be determined. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting point. I, I was reading something this morning um, about that very thing, and, and it was making the argument that, if anything, these, these protests, and at least the size um, of these protests, have actually grown over time and uh, leading up to, I think it was over this this weekend, right, in Washington, D.C., where it was one of the largest, if not the largest, gathering of people uh, in D.C. At, at any one given time. And I thought, this is this is remarkable and, and so necessary. I mean, obviously, this is, this is an issue that not only has it not gotten better, it hasn't gone away, and it, it, yeah. it, it needed to happen. It was just a matter of when. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm excited. You know, some people are like, oh, this is such a shame what's going on in our society. No, this is a good thing that people are resisting. That's the good news is people are actually resisting. People are getting off their butts off the couch, even in the midst of a pandemic, which obviously we got to be careful. But but it's that's really great news to see that. So that's the one exciting thing in the midst of the pain and um, just the horror of the ongoing anti-black racism that's been a part of it. And people are, again, beginning to see more and more, again, and I'm talking about more white stream America. America, seeing the role that policing is around its ways that it controls people, right, and the over-militarization. And these are conversations that are growing that weren't, we weren't able to have meaningful conversations with the broader society around these more challenging topics that are going to hopefully bring more change. Yeah. Uh, one, one of the things I thought was really interesting in your new book is you talk about, um, and, and I love, you do such a great job, by the way, of, of tying in history and just putting in uh, just amazing research um, to help kind of explain uh, you know, the, you know, how things are. And one of the things that I really liked about the new book is you start off by talking about Martin Luther King. And for a lot of folks... Mm. Um, growing up, you know, we, we always associate Martin Luther King with peaceful protesting, right? But like one of the things that you brought to light, you talk about this thing called Project C, which was this strategy he yeah. created based off of um, observing student movements in the South. And I thought this was yeah. really remarkable because it reminds me a lot of what we're seeing today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have um, Dr. King, I mean, C, Project C standard for confrontation, right? I mean, that's literally what they were trying to do. They were trying to spark confrontation. They were trying to disrupt society. They were trying to shut it down. Like, that was the goal. Uh, and so they were trying to do everything that they could to shut down the system. And they had a whole variety of tactics and strategies that they 
came in and they tried to implement it. And they had to adapt because initially they weren't getting the kind of responses that they were um, hoping for, right? And so they tried to do different things to spark shutting down society. And that led to eventually, you know, things like the mass children's uh, uh, protests and involvement um, that uh, that eventually did overfill the jails and pretty much shut down um, the business sector of, of Birmingham uh, and brought it to its knees, basically, right, until so that they could renegotiate around uh, desegregation and economics and things like that that they were working for. But the particular story I tell, it's worth noting, I, I love the story because it's rarely shared about Dr. King is he's in the room with his friends, well, uh, his colleagues who are struggling for justice there, and um, they're debating about what to do because they're not getting the kind of responses that people want. And um, Dr. King is just listening the whole time. He's not saying a word. And so finally, as they're debating about whether you know they should go fundraising or whether they, as Easter is coming and whether they need to go back to their own churches because most of them are pastors or um, you know whether Dr. King, yeah, all these different things. And Dr. King just gets up and leaves the room, closes the door. And, and leaves everybody still talking. Finally, after a while, he opens the door and he's changed his clothes. And he's no longer wearing, you know, his traditional, like, you know, black suit, white shirt, black tie, kind of classy, simple look. Now he's put on black jeans and a, a blue jeans and a blue work shirt. And the moment he came out, everybody knew immediately what he was thinking, that, um, they're not going to be going and getting dressed up for the fancy Easter service. Um, they're going to work, right? And that they're going to uh, hit the streets and they're going to get arrested over Good Friday. Um, and in some ways, by putting on his blue jeans, for me, that's a powerful symbol for people of faith that we need to also put on our blue jeans and get to work, hit the streets and embody the good news of this story of Jesus, right? So often church, Christians want to just celebrate Good Friday and Easter and things like that in the safety and the comfort of uh, religious practice, um, but not embody the significance of it actually out in our communities. And so I think Dr. King's um, embodying that, that story and inviting us to actually then think about what are the ways that we got to confront our own societies? What ways do we have to be disruptive and shut things down? Um, and, and so I think words like peaceful are actually— um, bad ways of describing Dr. King's philosophy. He talked about nonviolence, but he wasn't trying to be peaceful in the way that people use that word. He wasn't just trying to like bring everybody together to sing sing songs and hold hands and mar march without disrupting things. He wanted to shut things down. And his whole philosophy, if you read his writings on his letter from the Birmingham jail, it's by causing tension and by shutting things down, he wanted to expose the problems that existed that had always been there in society that were often being ignored. And so I think there's a lot of things we can still learn from Dr. King that are frequently, um, his witness is frequently domesticated. And I think uh, we got to recover some of that. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because um, I'll, I'll be honest myself, like a lot of other people, I'm sure um, have been glued to social media, to the news, um, keeping an eye on, on uh, w what things are happening out there, like trying to join in protests uh, where possible. And one of the things that um, I think was shocking for me, and I think this probably speaks to, you know, the, the, the safety, you know, as you put it, of, of being a white middle-class guy to be, quite honest, is the fact that um, a lot of these 
what started out as peaceful protests have ended up um, not so peaceful and and, in large part because the police force have been the aggressors and we're seeing people lose eyes as a result of these rubber bullets and tear gassing people. And it's, it's remarkable because, you know, the police have to know that they're being videotaped like left and right and center. And yet they don't seem to care. And so, uh, you know, what you were just talking about in terms of the, the, um, uh, the approach that Martin Luther King took, it almost seems like that's exactly what's happening now. It's bringing all of this stuff that was already there to national and world attention. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's no question. I mean, so for me in Harrisburg, so I'm in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and I went to the very first protest that was here in Harrisburg and was out there for a few hours. Everything was fine. Everything, you know, people just marching. There was very minimal police presence. They were kind of out of the way, and so everything was fine. I left. They marched, and they came back to the Capitol steps, and who was there waiting for them? A whole line of police with riot gear on, mm. right? Um, and, of course, then things get out of, you know, the tension grows and, and thing, there's tear gas and all kinds of stuff that happened. And, and so it's like they created the conditions in which there was going to be a problem. Um, but in some ways, that's helpful, I think, for folks to see that the role of police often is about the control of movements and suppression of poor and over-policing of poor and uh, black and brown communities. And so, and so people are getting to see in ways that they don't often see the way that police function, that their primary function is not about helping to create a better society, it's social control. And so um, I think hopefully by as people see this over and over and over again, it hopefully it'll change the narrative around what the actual role of policing is in our society. Because I think for too long, we focus so much on what we see on TV as if that's what policing really is, when that's probably like 1% of actual policing. And the majority of it, again, goes much more to the social control idea. I thought I was a soldier Yeah, so t- so talk a little bit about if you could um, this this term that's been out there a lot recently, which is defunding the police. And what a lot of people yeah. think that just means getting rid of the police completely. What does that actually mean? Yeah, um, and obviously there's going to be some range in terms of what exactly people mean by that. But in general, number one, it's we've spent just a dis a ridiculous amount of money on policing. Um, we've just keep spending more and more and increasing and thinking that that somehow is going to make society better. Um, when in fact, a lot of our problems actually have to do with social inequality, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the wealth gaps that exist in the history and legacy of racism and how it created segregated communities, ghettos and stuff like that. I think these are some of the bigger problems that, that, that policing just covers up what really is at stake. And so now we have tons of police running around. We spent tons of money on militarized police, riot gear, and some some police have tanks and all kinds of ridiculous stuff. You mentioned the, there was a journalist who got their eye taken out. They're permanently blind because of rubber bullets, right? All these things. And so um, what they're finding is that police, we don't actually need these things and that the majority of what police are being asked to do um, like 1% of it, it actually 
to relates to actually like felony crime stuff. The majority of it is, you know, intervening like somebody has a mental health crisis, right, and needs intervention or the dog is let loose in the backyard or whatever, right, or minor infractions and things like that that don't require um, the kind of training that we're giving police Uh, People with guns who are trigger happy because they're worried about someone coming out and killing them. Right. And so um, and so the way that we spend our money is actually not actually addressing the specific needs of our communities. And so when people are talking about defunding the police, let's take the so much of that money that's put towards policing and reinvest in like social work and mental health care and uh, different kinds of interventionists, right? Different kind of people can intervene in these moments of emergency and crisis beyond sending out people who are, again, trained to shoot first. That's not helpful in these moments. And so, and I think they say like literally, um, I think the average police officer, they say arrests one person per year or something like that, something really tiny, wow. right? So the majority of their time is not spent um, doing what we see on TV. They're not like these great getting the bad guys all the time. Um, and so there's a, a narrative that we've told ourselves about what police is. And the 99% of it I hear is actually pretty boring, right? That's what most of the police say. It's actually pretty boring. And, and then the time that they are engaging, a lot of times, again, it's people in crises who need help, but not the kind of help that they're able to offer. And so, um, it doesn't mean that there aren't any measures of accountability, um, ain't that there isn't need for maybe arresting people. Let's say you commit a murder or rape or you know serious felonies in that kind of sense. Um, but again, that's actually a small percentage of what policing actually is in the daily, um, everyday life of, of a police officer. And so I think that um, – We've got to redistribute our resources and our funds in ways that empower communities, that uplift communities, that liberate communities. And I think that's what the church should want, right? If we're working towards uh, the shalom, the flourishing of neighborhoods, then we should be wanting to make sure that our resources are actually doing that instead of what we're finding is that in black and brown communities and poor communities in general, um, it's about social control. It's over-policing. It's bullying. I mean, I, I've witnessed, and I think I mentioned in the book a little bit about seeing my own neighbor in Philly, right, with um, almost in the exact same posture as George Floyd was, uh, with a, a police on top of him and him shoving his hand, his head into the pavement, even though he's not resisting, right? What What is that kind of uh, brutality? What? How is this helping our neighborhood to have that kind of brutality happening on a regular basis, whether it ends in death or not is is besides the point of that these kind of constant ongoing humiliations that black and brown people face in their communities um, is just creating further problems, not helping them. And so we can find better ways of resolving. And, and honestly, all around the world, um, we have lots of examples of, of people who have way less crime, way less serious crime, way less gun deaths. Um, and so something's terribly wrong with what policing looks like now, which grew out of slave patrol and, um, and, and grew out of during the industrialization. Both of them were for social control. And so um, now we need to reimagine something uh, more holistic and healthy for our, for our communities um, that still recognizes that we're going to have to deal with people who need to be accountable for doing harm harmful things. But a lot of the a broken window policing that goes on today is um, is is neither beneficial for 
black communities or the broader society. And in fact, it's actually very expensive. Yeah, one, I, I read a, a similar article the other day that talked about, and I'd never really thought about it, but it makes complete sense that oftentimes the police are called out uh, for, as you said, like a you know somebody dealing with a mental illness, and and certainly they're not trained or equipped in that way to handle somebody who has a mental illness. Or the other big one was someone who has an, a problem with addiction, and they're certainly yeah. not addiction specialists either. So it's it's in a sense we're sending the wrong people to respond to these types of. Uh, of issues. Right. And we've spent millions, I mean, you think about the war on drugs and how that has devastated the black community since crack was introduced into our communities. Uh, What would have happened if we had, you know, instead of criminalizing black people, we've had, you know, interventionists in terms of health care, right, and um, public health responses to these issues. uh, we'd be in a completely different place today. Instead, we've got millions of people locked up and even more, millions more in probation and under surveillance um, walking around as well. And so I think we've got to just reimagine the whole system from the top down, re- redistribute the way that these resources are being used. And, um, and, and then maybe we can actually have, you know, um, the beginning. But then we'll have to deal with some other deeper problems in our society like the massive inequality that exists um, that perpetuates some of these problems to begin with, which is why I think so many wealthy people want the policing to do its role, which is social control more than it is crime fighting and getting the bad guys. Yeah, yeah. And I, you talk about that in the book, too. And I think that's a huge component that I definitely want to talk about is the economic aspect of it. Um, before we get there, though, I definitely want to talk about um, in the book, in the new book, you talk about something that has bothered me for a long time, um, but it's the, the role of the church in all of this and the fact that, um, yeah. especially yeah. in Western Christianity, the voice of the church has largely been silent. And you have this great section of the book where you really break down the history um, going back to uh, the first century all, all the way up to the abolitionist era. And I would love for you to, to talk about that a little bit and explain how it is that we kind of in a sense, deviated, really. Yeah, I mean, I think there's no question that if if you become a student of church history, um, it's a painful <laughs> it's a painful read at times to to dive deeply into church history, especially when you're paying attention to um, the people that the church uh, persecute, oppress, kill you know, um, burn at the stake and such. And so there's a, um, there's beautiful parts of our history. Um, but when the church gets, uh, in bed with the States in the fourth century, um, we see, uh, just an explosion of what I call it Christian supremacy, right? Uh, the practice of Christian supremacy. And, and so we see this top down coercive Christianity that's being imposed on societies, um, and that develops, and out of that Christian supremacy, um, centuries later, um, create the conditions for for white supremacy to be birthed. To it literally morphs. That in the oh well, first you see it beginning with um, the Crusades, with the permission and the language of uh, Terra Nullius, this empty lands. That basically, if if lands are not Christian, then they're considered empty lands and, and are, can be um, claimed. Uh, but then that idea gets um, implemented in fresh ways in the 15th century, um, first with Portugal and Spain, as they go out and they get permission from the church, papal bulls giving them permission to colonize, to, for conquest, to plunder, to 
slave to kill. Um, and so we, we see that play out. And, and so literally colonialism and conquests um, are birthed out of the church, right? This is deeply, this is not something that the church got drug into. The church created these problems. We were, the church was at the center of it, right? And so we have to grapple with the ways in which uh, Christian supremacy morphed into white supremacy in society. And, and, and once we actually begin to see it, and hopefully people will see it in the chapter a little bit more clearly when you kind of walk in each step through, what you begin to see is that white supremacy is not just a sociological problem. It's just as much a theological problem. And the ch- church has not grappled with the depth of how much its witness has been mangled um, by the legacy of colonialism and white supremacy. And so we've got to grapple with this in the ways that um, the church has caused so much pain um, all around the world. I mean, people's cultures and traditions and customs have been destroyed and decimated. Um, Certainly, I mean, I literally, I carry the last name of slave masters, right? Um, And so it's been so deeply... um, destructive as a force in so many ways that people don't want to grapple with it. And so Jesus, Jesus himself has been, um, literally colonized, right? He's been whitened and create and become a a puppet, uh, for the status quo, a mascot for oppression and social dominance. And so we've got to grapple not only with the whitening of Jesus in terms of visually, but the domesticating of Jesus and the colonizing of Jesus so that he's been tied to projects of social dominance and oppression um, for so long. And so, yeah, um, the church is deeply embedded with this. And it's not until we look and peer deeply at what has happened, take a look, look in the mirror. It's not until we really do that seriously that we're going to be able to kind of disentangle all the mess that has nothing to do with Jesus, that has nothing to do with the way, the good news and the reign of God on earth. Um, until we do that work, we're going to continue to try to be a part of the solution and continue to perpetuate the problem as well. And so we've got to get a better sense of Christian history, I think, um, if we're going to move forward in any kind of meaningful way. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting because he, this this chapter, I was thinking about it this morning. Um, I, I saw a tweet from um, a theologian that we've had on the, the show a couple of times, uh, Pastor Greg Boyd, where he, he tweeted out, and it's, it's sad but true. He said, uh, I, I know that some white evangelical pastors who stood up today against systemic racism and who will be as a result unemployed by Tuesday to them, I can only say, well done thou good and faithful servant. And it's, it's sad, but absolutely true. It's like, why, why is it so hard for uh, Western Christianity to, to do the thing that Jesus taught us to do in the gospels? And it, this seems like a no brainer. Racism is bad. Clearly Jesus would have been opposed to it. Uh, you know, lo- love your brother, you know, as yourself, like, why is this so difficult in, in, in uh, white, you know, white evangelicalism specifically, because again, they by and large, I think it was something like 80 something odd percent supported uh, a candidate for president who uh, has very yeah. clear racist ties in his history. Yeah, no, 81% of white evangelicals supported Donald Trump, um, and he campaigned, right? It's not like he just did these things after the fact. He campaigned on blocking Muslims from entry, from building the wall, from law and order in response to Black Lives Matter. I mean, these were the things that he campaigned on. And so um, it's not, yeah, it's white supremacy. And so 
The reason why it's so hard is because Jesus has been Jesus has been lost, right? People have detoured around Jesus and have domesticated Jesus and distorted his witness. And so now he literally is this safe, you know, Jesus is my boyfriend. I've got emotions for Jesus, but has nothing to do with the radical witness of the first century Palestinian Jew living under Roman occupation. And so until we've recovered the the Jesus of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right, who says, take up your cross and follow, follow me, which means be willing to clash with the system and accept the consequences that come with it, of it, right? Including death, right? State sanctioned death. Like that's literally what that means. And until we can grapple with that calling, um, then we're going to continue to have a domesticated Jesus where people will choose the status quo over standing with the people that Jesus did, right? The least and last of society. And so I'm not surprised um, that, that some folks are going to experience um, severe backlash, but in some ways, some of that backlash is precisely because they hadn't been doing the work of discipling their folks all along, right? Um, and so you can't you can't surprise you can't be surprised um, or too upset at your own people for not knowing what Jesus stands for if you've been standing in the pulpit not preaching Jesus faithfully all this time up to that point. And so, um, yeah. I, I guess that's just a tough message for from me that you know it, th- these are the surprising things and at some time at some point I'm glad that people are waking up and there's always going to be consequences right I, I've experienced all kinds of consequences for the way that I um, speak up and try to speak truth about who I believe God is and what God is calling us to be as the church um, and I think that we've all got to count the costs in our own lives and decide is following Jesus actually going to be worth it right for me or do I want to c- continue on with the status quo domesticated Jesus because it's comfortable and it pays well. Ah, so true. So um, talk about a little bit, I thought this was a really interesting section of the book. You talk, you take a look at the role of Barabbas in the Bible and what his role in the gospels has to teach us. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. That's one of my favorite chapters. Um, Yeah. So it's interesting that, you know, Barabbas, um, I believe I, I say that he's the most misunderstood uh, person in the New Testament, right? So maybe next to Jesus, it's a tie. Who's, yeah. who's more misunderstood, Jesus or Barabbas? Um, but what we find is that here's this character who shows up in every single one of the gospel stories, every single one, which is a lot. Most of the stories do not show up in all four of the gospels. So that the fact that they find it that important that Barabbas is a part of the Jesus story in a significant way is really fascinating. Um, and so then we got to think, you know, what do we take from that? What, what do we learn from it? Now, typically evangelicals have often looked to Barabbas and kind of used him as a foil to preach Jesus as the innocent son of God, right? And so they've kind of said, oh yeah, you've got Barabbas, this guilty murderer and sinful one, and Jesus takes his place, right? And so they use it to try to preach substitutionary atonement, penal substitutionary atonement. Um, but it's pretty clear when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that that's not why Barabbas is in the story. It's not to to preach uh, substitutionary atonement, um, certainly not like that, at least. And in fact, the only time that Barabbas is kind of framed in terms of being compared to Jesus and Jesus being compared as the innocent one, it has nothing to do with innocence in terms of a sinless life. 
it's in Gospel of Luke, Jesus is framed as innocent to the political charges that we find him being charged of, which is subverting the empire, re- refusing, telling people not to pay their taxes and things like that, right? These really subversive political acts. It's the question, is Jesus that subversive? And so, um, and so the question still remains, then why is Barabbas in this story? What, what is his significance? And so what I do, I might do some a lot more history and to kind of uh, line them up to this moment of thinking about Maccabees and the revolts and all the way up to the Jewish-Roman War, and just the history to contextualize what's going on in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, but what we see is that Barabbas was a revolutionary. He actually, it, it's very clear from the Gospels that he participated in the insurrectionists. That's how they describe him. They don't say a lot about him, but that's what they describe about him, that he participated in the in, in the uprisings that were happening at that time. That means basically in what now many people call the zealots, although they didn't exactly exist at that by that name at that time, but that same kind of tradition, this zealot tradition of revolutionaries, that that's what Barabbas was a part of um, when they say bandit. That's what that word meant at that time. And so um, and so what we all of a sudden find out is that that Jesus is always in every single gospel being compared to a zealot, a revolutionary, an upri- a, a freedom fighter, so to speak. And that is actually fascinating that that is so important as a part of the Jesus story, such an important part that needs to be a part of it each time for each of the stories. And so Matthew's gospel in particular makes it interesting because um, in the oldest manuscripts, it actually has um, Barabbas, not just by the name Barabbas, but by the name Jesus Barabbas, right? And so in those manuscripts, Jesus Barabbas, and it actually gives you this juxtaposition. Who do you want, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus the Christ? And when when they ask that question, um, then it reminds you that Jesus, his name it comes from Joshua or Yeshua, right? And that means the one who saves, the one who liberates, the one who delivers, right? And you think about this history of deliverance, of God delivering God's people from suffering and oppression, from slavery and all these troubles that they face. Um, and so it, it begs us to ask, who do you want to be your deliverer? Who do you trust? Who will save you from your trials and your troubles, right? Is it going to be this violent insurrectionist, this freedom fighter who's known, right? He's already got the reputation as someone who's willing to put his life on the line to overthrow the the powers that be. Or is it the one who comes um, saying, blessed are the peacemakers and love your enemies, but stands in solidarity with the poor and oppressed and confronts the establishment. But when he confronts it and he disrupts it, right, he doesn't do it so in a way that he tries to kill his enemies. Um, and so he ends up being crucified, right, vulnerable. And, and anyone who follows him are going to be vulnerable in that way. Way too, and so it's a different kind of radical, revolutionary, nonviolent Messiah that that we get a glimpse of when we take seriously Barabbas as the the op the other option. In fact, you kind of see it in Jesus when he says in Luke nineteen, um, he he mourns over Jerusalem because of the coming destruction of 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 the of from the Roman War that's going to be coming, and. As he mourns over them, he says, if only they had known the things that make for peace, right? And so it suggests that there are particular ways that do bring peace, and that's peace in the holistic sense for Jews, not this slim sense of being peaceful. It's shalom. It's the flourishing. It's harmony and interconnectedness. 
this of all people, where we're living as God desires for us to live. And so that's that's peace in the fullest sense. And so what does it mean that God, that Jesus um, lamented that they didn't know the things that make for peace? His, his problem wasn't necessarily um, that they wanted Rome to go. It's how they went about it, that, that there's actually a way that Jesus is inviting us to struggle, um, that we ought to reimagine as followers of Jesus and take him very, very seriously at that. And I think that um, the church has rarely taken up Jesus's way that seriously as it relates to social change. And I think that, that that's an opportunity that we have now to, to, to join in with that work that God is calling us to. That's, that's a perfect segue into another section later in the book where you talk about um, Jesus as a model to work for justice, uh, which seems incredibly important now more than ever. So what are some ways in which we can push towards a system of true equality by using Jesus as that model? Yeah, I mean, I think when you and, and you know, so I've. There's a chapter in the, towards the beginning and then towards the ends that really maybe you could in some ways say they can connect a little bit. But I, in the beginning, I have a story uh, chapter where I look at uh, Mark's gospel, where he goes into the temple and confronts the establishment. And, and I think there's so much there um, to learn from Jesus in terms of him as a grassroots movement leader, right? Um, that he actually invites us into a new imagination for grassroots work, confronting systems of oppression, naming them, disrupting them, and embodying a prophetic witness in the midst of what's happening around us. And so I think that's the starting point. And then the question for us then is, which is towards the end of the book, um, thinking about what are the concrete ways that we can actually pursue social change that are faithful to the way of Jesus? And so for me, um, I, I believe that in the broadest sense, um, nonviolence and thinking about what it means to participate in nonviolent movements um, is consistent and conducive with the peacemaking of Jesus. And when I say nonviolence, I mean, in particular, like there's particular ways of doing nonviolent action and resistance. Um, it's a tradition that's that's growing um, and that people are developing models and sharing techniques and stuff. And it's actually become extremely effective. Actually, the stats say that that nonviolent movements all around the world have been more effective than violent ones. And that's under both uh, in democracies and under dictators, right? And it's, it's growing more effective as we as we go. And so there's something to be learned about that. And then there's uh, organizing efforts, right? Grassroots organizing in local communities. There's protest movements and the ways that they work and can, can kind of um, channel the energy of particular moments and, and, and sometimes bring uh, significant uh, social change you know, right in short amounts of time. And, and then, of course, we got to think about what does it mean to live in a democratic uh, republic, right? Um, and how do we engage electoral process, right? And how do we do it in ways that don't just um, adopt the political platforms of the ruling parties, right? Um, where Christians just sound like their ethics basically are the Republican Party or the Democratic Party and nothing uniquely Jesus shaped about it. And so I think that there's ways in which we should be starting allowing the Jesus story to shape our imagination and our and our ethics and politics. And then the 
as we engage with those who are most vulnerable in our communities on the grounds, right, that those are the issues and problems that we prioritize. And then we bring that to the powers that be. We actually have a prophetic witness that starts with the people and, and then brings it and tells them, this is these are the issues that you need to be dealing with. This is what is righteous. This is what is just. And it's the opposite than what we see right now where um, literally um, massive amounts of money are spent by billionaires who customize these platforms, and then they tell us what we're, we're going to be push, working for, right? And so I think that we need to recover what it means to be the church on the ground, uh, from below, on the grassroots level in our neighborhoods, and in solidarity with those who are most vulnerable and oppressed. Uh, amen. <laughs> um, one, one of the things we have to talk about, we, we mentioned it earlier, and, and this is a huge uh, part of, of the systemic issue of, of racism, at least in, in the United States, is, is this, uh, this component of economics and just the massive amount of disparity that exists. So I know you address that in the book. Talk about that a little bit for, for people to understand what we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, I get into a bunch of different history. I think I actually start, I can't remember exactly. The funny thing is, uh, I don't, I can hardly remember my own books. It's so fresh um, in terms of how I frame everything. But I know I do talk a little bit about early church Christians a little bit, just to scare us a little bit, because they're way more radical than anything I can say in terms as it relates to wealth and their belief that the wealthy have stolen, right? That That's a belief, not because of any practice, but just by hoarding wealth, you've stolen what doesn't belong to you. And you need to give it back to to the poor, right? So I start with some of that, I think, somewhere in there. But um, but for me, um, we've got to grapple with the history of, of the United States, and particularly how wealth has been d- distributed and the ways in which it has been racialized. And we, we ignore the policies, particularly in the 20th century, that deeply shape um, our world today. And so, so often you, you, you hear folks want to uh, blast Black people um, for you know, not picking up, um, picking up, you know, you know, just personal responsibility and you know, working hard, and that's how they got wealthy, right? There's all these narratives around how white people's great grandparents just worked hard and, and created wealth, but the fact of the matter is, is that in the early 20th century, there were tons of progressive era laws that were created for white people so that they could create wealth. And that their hard work would produce something, right? Um, because prior to those progressive era laws, um, most white people were poor. Um, and so the, actually the white middle class was actually created through intentional government interventions that created FHA loans and Homestead Acts and all kinds of policies, New Deal. All these things were done um, so that white people could get housing for the very first time, own their own homes, um, create wealth, and, and that their wealth could work for them, right? And at the same time that these progressive era laws are being created to benefit white people, black people are intentionally being excluded from participating and benefiting from these things. And so black people are are, are not just segregated geographically, but they're segregated um, from the economy, from benefiting from the economy as well. And that's so the ghettos played a mul- multiple roles, not only socially and relationally and all that, but actually uh, literally segregated people from uh, participation in the economic system and from benefiting from it. 
So, I mean, we could go on and on about um, that, the details of the history, but I think it's important for people to begin to take a look at that history and to realize that the way things are today are precisely because of policies and interventions that were designed to benefit white people. In some ways, we could call them government handouts to white people. Um, and that the very people now that want to say, oh, my people work so hard, are denying and ignoring the fact that that white people in general who joined in the middle class in the 20th century were able to largely because they were um, beneficiaries of these policies that black people were excluded from intentionally. So with that, we've seen just the ongoing racial wealth gap continue to grow, right? I mean, it already had a problem since the moment of slavery, which black people were laboring without being paid for their labor and literally building the wealth of this country. But it's persisted all the way through because of the various policies and the ways that we refuse to do government interventions for black people who were intentionally exploited um, by this country that we did for white people. And so I think that those are some of the big issues that are, are creating some of the issues. But then there's other bigger issues, right, um, that are just functions of our capitalist society and the ways that we refuse to create policies that will um, be most equitable for the most majority of people. And so we allow the suppression of wages to continue to go on, right? And so um, wages have been held down, but with inflation, it's basically going downward. And so we've got to um, help people. So you can't even survive on these wages. And so we actually have like Walmart. I, mean, I think one of the cases I think I, I cited was a time where in Walmart, they they were paying their, their employees so poorly that they actually had asked other employees to donate to their own employees <laughs> because oh they couldn't, you know, like canned goods or something, you know? Um, and, but you know what happens when, when we allow uh, uh, large multinational corporations and, and large corporations like Walmart to not pay the wages, they still – all that happens is that the, the onus on that shifts to the broader society because somebody's got to pay for, you know, for, the, for these things. And so we're allowing people to get filthy rich while not paying fair livable wages. And uh, if they can – if the Walmart family, the Walton family – can be one of the wealthiest families in the world, which they are, and there's multiple of them, um, but they're not paying fair wages, then something is terribly wrong. And so we need to have livable wages, and that's something very basic that everybody should be for, um, livable wages. If you can't pay livable wages, then um, you shouldn't be hiring someone. And so I think that that's some of the things that we have to wrestle with in our society today again. Um, I think for me, um, the question for the church is that we've never actually grappled with Jesus's jubilee economics, right? We've ignored it. We skirted it in every way. In fact, I've had conversations even with an economics professor, a Christian, so, so-called Christian professor, who when I asked him about what he thought about Luke's gospel and how it relates to wealth and poverty— he didn't even know what I was talking about. I was like, how could you, are you not reading your Bible? Like oh, that's no. what the whole gospel is about. It's about, well, it just over and over. It just beats you. I mean, Jesus has a vicious class consciousness, right? And he just won't relent, especially in the gospel of Luke. He just doesn't relent on this. And so over and over and over again, wealth and poverty, wealth and poverty. Um, and so you have really interesting stories, but one of them that's most interesting, which it, it kind of mirrors the rich young ruler who Jesus invites to sell all his things and give it to the poor and follow Jesus, who he walks away sad. Right after that, uh, just uh, right real close to that story, we have um, Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus. 
And there we, it's nothing like, you know, the, the Sunday school song that kids like to sing, um, growing up. Cause in the Sunday school song version of it, it actually leaves out the punchline of the story, which is, uh, when Jesus, when Zacchaeus has his Jesus encounter, right? When he meets Jesus, his response is Jubilee. He says automatically, look, I'm going to give back. I'm going to give half of my wealth to the poor and I'm going to give four times what I've taken from people. I'm going to give four times back. Right. And so this is like beyond just uh, calculated reparations. This is a reparations uh, leading towards shalom and flourishing of those who had been harmed. And so I think what is really powerful there is that there's this beautiful model that Jubilee happens, right? Jubilee economics happens when you encounter Jesus and take him seriously. And that's precisely what uh, many American Christians have refused to wrestle with and grapple with. And so it's it's funny that that it's such a dynamic part of the Jesus story when when reparations seems like it's a bad word among many mainstream Christians, when in fact repair and making amends and setting things right are actually deeply biblical. In fact, that's where the idea comes from. Reparations isn't an uh, idea that comes from Marxism or anything. Reparations comes from Christian theology and thought that we ought to set things right and make amends when we do wrong and harm. That it's not just about saying sorry. We confess our sins, we repent, and we make things right by making amends. And so I think that— um, We've got a lot of work to do to to not just have a, a even a conversation that's just about calculated what's the debt owed in terms of dollar signs and then that's so then we're done with this. It's how do we um, what's the debt owed, but how do we go and work out um, uh, a, a way of reparations that will ensure that people flourish, right? So it's not just about dollars, cents. That's not the only thing. It's 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 we've done centuries of harm, particularly. I'm going to talk about Black and Native American. American people, that there's centuries of harm that's been done. How do we help these communities flourish in response to, to all this harm that's been done? That should be the Christian question that people are asking that, that I just rarely hear. Um, there's a little bit more talk more recently, but not enough. Yeah. So so let's say, uh, theoretically speaking, of course, we get a new president in, in November, maybe. Who knows? But let's say we get a new president and that president hires Dr. Drew Hart to be an advisor uh, to, to help deal with this issue that, that has been brought to the surface of systemic racism. What, what are some tangible things uh, that can be done so that this isn't just a flash in the pan, as you said, that, that, that this, this, um, this anger and this frustration and this, and this sadness and, and this uh, collective solidarity that's happening um, isn't all for nothing, and it actually pushes us towards lasting change. Yeah, I mean, there's probably I, I don't know if uh, I can throw out a few things off the fly. Um, though I don't actually think the problem has ever been about our capacity to imagine what we could do. I think it's about a will, right? But but for that sake, like I think we we could. Easily, number one, just investing in with uh, impoverished uh, families that are disproportionately impoverished already. And so um, there's no reason why we're not investing and pouring resources into these communities as much as possible and finding out like what, I mean, if it means, you know, uh, more teachers and hands in the classroom to support and smaller classroom size, whatever we got to do. I think that there's so many things that could be done if we actually cared about educating black and brown children as a starting point, right? 
Um, but of course, there's other things. Housing, right? So many black people ha- have a, a very low rate of housing compared to everybody else in society. So housing is the greatest way to pass on wealth in our society currently. Um, and so many are still are large percentage large percentages of people, black people are renters still. And so they've never recovered from that. And and then you add all the redlining and stuff that have depreciated black, uh, the value of black homes anyway, um, is a whole separate problem. But but I think if we invest in these communities and resources, make sure that they create jobs with livable wages, right? Um, invest in not even just when education, but actually truthful education in terms of teaching uh, children the actual history of what has gone on and not just this beautiful myth of American exceptionalism that gets taught often in our schools. Um, I think that those are some easy starting points. And then certainly putting, I think there's nothing wrong with um, resourcing both individuals, but also funds, um, grants, and all kinds of stuff that are going to continue to invest in communities. Um, But yeah, I mean, Honestly, I'm not a special. I know that there's lots of people have done so much work on this, so I wouldn't want to make myself the expert on what to do on this at all, um, because I don't actually think that the problem is that we don't have people smart enough to figure out how to do reparations well if if our society had the will to do it, right? And so I think that's the greater issue is, can we have a national conversation um, where we actually tell the truth? Um, and that's really the hard work is can we get to the point where we're will, willing to tell the truth? So long as we're committed to um, a narrative that kind of, you know, makes America this inevitable story of democracy and justice and goodness and innocence and all these things, we'll never be able to grapple with the fact that that so much uh, harm and violence and oppression has come out of America. And certainly it doesn't deny that there isn't some cultural energy and and capacities that flourish out of the American context too. I mean, certainly black Americans have in some ways on a global level have shaped so much uh, music and entertainment and sports and all and all poetry, all kinds of stuff on a national uh, global level in terms of the cultural productions, right, that have come out of our communities. And so, but, but that alone is not enough to deal with the harm that's been done, uh, the psychological harm, right? Um, and, and I think that, um, but that begs the question that are we willing to go through a rebirth, right, of society. I mean, I think that's really what it comes down to. Are we willing for our society to go through, as Dr. King called it, a radical revolution of values, where we reprioritize things that actually matter, that are people-centered rather than thing-centered? And so um, those things are what will take us, will lead us towards some kind of meaningful reparations. I'm worried that if we just did some kind of easy, quick reparations now, it won't be anything substantial that will actually help people flourish. It will be about just trying to get some check signs that we can move on, right? And it's interesting that, that and many black people have noted that that people have said in the past, you know, oh, $10 trillion, we don't have money for that. But suddenly, you know, when we're in pandemic and it's affecting white people, then trillions of dollars can be spent here and trillions of dollars there. Um but, but when we say we need funding for education, there's no money for that, right? And so I think that, um, that it already shows that our values and uh, the, that black people's lives do not matter and our society still upholds today. Uh, yeah. It, it, you, what you just said made me think of um, one of my favorite books um, by uh, James Baldwin, of the, the Fire Next Time, 
where he talks about that, the idea that it's, um, what is it? it? It is rare indeed that people give most people guard and keep. And, and he goes on to talk about how giving uh, involves risk. And that seems to me that's exactly the issue uh, for especially white Americans when it comes to not only politics, but religion as well. That can you say that last part? Like, I'm not sure if I'm following exactly where you were. That it, you fin- finish your thought or extend your thought a little bit more. Yeah. So he, he just talks about the fact that that it, it seems to me that like people don't willingly give uh, when it comes to to anything. They they guard and keep. Uh, I think yeah. the rest of the quote is that they uh, they suppose that it is they themselves and what they identify with themselves that they are guarding and keeping. Uh, whereas what they're actually guarding and keeping is their system of reality and what they assume themselves to be. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I wonder like to what degree then, you know, and again, like this going, going back to like our theological imagination, like to what degree does a theology of Shalom um, shape uh, American Christianity? You could say it's completely absent at times, right? Where this sense in which we belong to one another, interconnected, and that my well-being is tied up in somebody else's well-being, right? Um, I think that that we've lost sight of that, and so this guardedness is really a hyper individualism that we see in our country, in particular. And and so so long as we are framed, I, mean, I think I even started in the beginning of the book actually talking about American freedom, right? This idea in which you know American freedom is really so hyper individualistically framed, and it's not concerned about others, and so it's not the kind of freedom where we're being liberated from the captivity to sin and selfishness and greed and other things like that, and towards one another and towards God. Instead, it's this freedom of I can do whatever I want; it doesn't matter if it harms anybody else. Uh, you know, you can't tell me what to do, right? It's that kind of selfish freedom is American freedom. And I I wonder, you know, can we make a shift? Can we make a turn where shalom and and our interdependency upon one another and uh, beloved community and the community of creation, right, that we can kind of lean in towards these things um, more than we have? Um, Can we be delivered from the ways that we are just stuck in ourselves right now. Um, that's, that's the, I mean, as a Christian theologian, I have to say yes, but, um, (laughs) but as a black man, it's, there's despair, right? As when, and will it ever come, um, is the question. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it certainly goes back to that whole idea of risk and, and certainly to me, it seems like the risk there is giving up, uh, a sense of comfort for a lot of like white, Christians, you know, it's, we want to go to church. We want to hear this beautiful, like worship music. We want to feel good, you know, for an hour. But when it comes to actually doing the things that Jesus asked, like taking care of the poor, uh, you know, I want to, I want to send a check out to help take care of the poor, but I don't want them living in my backyard, you know? Right. 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 Yeah. And, and, and in doing so, it shows our bias that we actually don't believe that we're better off with one another, right? <laughs> um, that they finally, that many folks fundamentally don't want to be with others, despite what people say. At the end of the day, you can see by people's actual choices, um, the communities that people choose to live in, the social relationships that people choose, the resource, everything, right? The way that we hoard uh, wealth. Um, we see what our actual values are, and oftentimes it's not for all humanity nor creation. Yeah. 
Man, so I, I know we're running out of time here, but I, I just want to leave the, the last uh, question essentially just to, to allow you to kind of um, uh, provide some last thoughts and, and maybe maybe some advice in terms of how do folks best take advantage of this moment in history to uh, to continue to push things forward, like you know, and, and make um, you know tangible, lasting change. Like, what are some things that we can do to support this movement in the in the best possible way? Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things that we find, in fact, this is, again, research-based, is that, you know, it actually doesn't take all of society to bring um, significant change, that just 3.5% of the population, if if 3.5% of the population engages in active and sustained movement work, right, 3.5%, but it's got to be active and sustained over the long term, um, change always comes is what the science said. That's what the stats say. Right. Um, but, but so, so I guess the question is, um, can, especially for churches and Christians that are awakening to what's going on, going on all around us, are they committed to the work or is this just going to be another fad? Um, it's easy to, you know, get riled up for a moment to show up to one protest or two or so. And then, you know, with the 24 hour news cycle, you know, eventually people get distracted with other things and it's over. Right. Um, but can we be in solidarity with those who are oppressed and vulnerable in such a way that we're committed over the long haul to work towards this? If we can do that, then I think then there's reason to be hopeful about significant change happening in our society. Um, yeah. And so I don't, I don't know, um, I'm curious what will happen. I think that it's very easy that we will, as the political, um, as the electoral process draws near towards November, people are going to get distracted and we're going to easily fall back into top-down partisan platform politics that shape the imagination of the church rather than from the bottom up, from the grassroots. And so my invitation, I guess, is for folks to um, stay on the grounds, build relationships, and stay connected to those who are most oppressed and follow their leadership, um, allow them to shape your political and moral imagination around what needs to happen, right, that they share with you, hold on to them tightly, and um, and then struggle, struggle for change, right? Hope, I mean, I think as some have said, you know, hope is not just about feelings, um, hope has to be embodied, it has to be lived and pursued, uh, we have to... Uh, um, get up off the couch and be the hope, right, for others. And so um, can we do that now in these hard times? I think that that's, that'll be the, the question of whether the church has really awakened in any kind of real way, or if, again, it was just a fad. It doesn't mean that it wasn't genuine if it was a fad, um, but it means that we haven't really fully grappled with um, the depths of ways of which white supremacy has entrenched our society and has entrenched the church and has entrenched our practices and our liturgies and the ways that we go about our lives. And so um, hopefully we can resist and follow the way of Jesus. And I do believe, I'm out, in some ways it sounds cheesy, but I believe that Jesus provides us a better way um, to, to respond and that the, especially the Jesus stories, right? They're powerful um, for, for um, reimagining a different way of being in the world. Um, and they invite us to then go searching for the living resurrected Jesus in our world today and to go out into the streets and to bear witness to the reign of God that is coming. Wow. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's where we got to end it. <laughs> that's, 
Oh man, that's great. Thank you so much again for coming on. Um, it, it was, it was so meaningful the first time you came on. I think it's even more meaningful now, um, based on, on, on what's going on in the world around us. Your, your work is, uh, never been more important right now. Um, can't wait for the book to come out. Uh, we'll certainly promote it here. Um, I, I just think, yeah, I just think your work is, is, uh, absolutely, um, powerful and, and essential right now. Thank you so much. It's been good. It's been really good. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Quick go!